Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Randy, come on up here. So this is Randy Hoffbeck, and this morning, this is our final in our series on evangelism without additives. And if you don't know Randy, Randy, I think you've been here longer than I have. I have. That's a long I time. I have. So Randy and his wife, Cindy, have been around here for quite a while. I think a lot of you know their kids and stuff as well. But Randy, uh, Randy, you've done a variety of things in your career and uh, continue to do that. You recently retired. You were working on the state. I know um, you also have been to seminary and do some, uh, both with, I think, an MDiv and a and, Master's and of Pastoral Counseling. Counseling, is yeah. that right? Good, because I want to meet with you later. <laughs> no, I'm anyway, yeah, I'm excited that Randy could be here. He spoke, I remember you've spoken here before. It's been a little while, but um, can I pray for you real quick? Absolutely. As you, yeah. Absolutely. Lord, thank you for Randy and uh, for his heart and his ministry, and thank you for what you've laid on him to share with us today, and I pray that you would use him to speak to us uh, from your word and from life, and uh, may we be encouraged to follow harder after Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. I want to add one additional scripture reading um, before we get started today, and it comes out of 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Verses 16 to 23. It says, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer free of charge, and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free to belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though, law, uh, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those having um, the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those are not under the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share its blessings. The word of our Lord. I was thinking um, and talking, and I'm going I'm to speak today about uh, evangelism and uh, kind of wrap up uh, the, the series that we've had over the last couple of months. And uh, evangelism's hard. It's really hard. But I was thinking, how hard can it really be? I mean, my previous position, I was Commissioner of Revenue for the state of Alaska. And it was my job to go out in the Matsu Valley and tell them that taxes were a good idea. That's got to be harder than telling people <laughs> about God. But we see in our, in our scriptures today that uh, some pretty strong words. We see that 
uh, when, when Moses uh, was making excuses why he couldn't deliver God's message, it says that the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. In Acts 1.8, which is really a restatement of the, the Great Commission, we didn't read it today, but it's been read earlier in the series. It says, Christ's instruction says, you shall be my witnesses. It doesn't say you can be. It doesn't say, you know, if you'd like to be. It says, you shall be my witnesses. And then Paul today in 1 Corinthians said, whether I do it voluntarily or not, I have a, a responsibility to preach the gospel. That's what he saw his commitment was with his faith. So you got God, you got Jesus, you got Paul. And that's that's pretty pretty good triumvirate telling you this. You have a responsibility to preach the gospel to unbelievers. And no excuses will be accepted. That being said, the fact that we know that to be the case. If I said, we have arranged today an opportunity for you to come, go down to the neighborhood just below the church here, and we'll go door to door knocking on doors and tell people about Jesus Christ, how many of you would be ready to go? Yeah. I wouldn't either. I mean, how hard can it be? I mean, you just rock. Hi, my name is Randy. I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And it can't be that hard, right? Why do we have so much trouble? sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people. Is there something wrong with us? Is our faith not strong enough? Is our relationship with God not strong enough? Is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with you? Is there something wrong with us that Christians as a whole have such a hard time sharing the gospel? I know those were questions that plagued me for many, many years, starting when I was um, in my early teens. My early teens... The pastor of our church, our church called a new pastor. He's fresh out of seminary. He was an evangelist. He was on fire for the Lord. He's still an evangelist. He's 80 years old now. He's still on fire for the Lord. But he had determined that he was going to convert the world and that his youth group was going to be his foot soldiers. And so we learned the three steps or four steps or five steps, how many steps there were. And, and we learned catchphrases like, uh, you know, if you died tonight, do you know where you would be? And, and, and we learned how to approach people. And then we purportedly, we set out to win Christians, win people to faith. I remember, um, in particular, a night we were at a, a, a youth camp out. We were in a, in a campground in central Minnesota. And, and, uh, and that camped out next to us was a Boy Scout troop. And so after dinner, several of us, um, you know, we, we, we got together and we went in. We were going to win some Boy Scouts for Christ. I remember there's three of us that spent um, several hours that night um, talking to three Boy Scouts. And I can't remember if any of them accepted Christ that night. I expect that they didn't or I would have remembered it. But after that evening, I made a commitment I made a commitment that I would never do anything like that ever again in my whole life. A time that should have been joyous, should have been fulfilling, should have been something that really was, was um, something that I embraced was nothing short, short of sheer terror for me. I felt unprepared. I felt out of place. I was so far out of my comfort zone, I didn't even know where my comfort zone was. And from that day forward... I avoided anything and everything 
that even uh, slightly resembled witnessing. See, in my own way, I was very much the same as Moses. When Moses said, what do I say if they don't believe me? I said, amen, Moses. I have no idea what to say. And when he said, I don't talk very well and I really don't know what to say, I said, me too, Moses. And when Moses said, please, God, send somebody else, I said, God, send somebody else. I can't do this. And the anxiety and the guilt that built up from that became a real stumbling block for me. It became a stumbling block from a call to ministry that I felt since I was very, very young. But I thought, how can I go into the ministry if I can't share the good news of Jesus Christ easily? It kept me from wanting to be in leadership in the church because, you know, they might sign me the evangelism committee or, or, or they might decide that they're going to do an outreach program and want the leaders of the church to be, you know, in front of that outreach program. And, and I couldn't do that. It even kept me from coming to church sometimes because I thought, what am I missing? What am I missing? Why don't I get it? Why can't I do this? And it certainly made me something less than bold in sharing my faith or even sharing the fact that I was a Christian. I was in a hole. I was separated from Christ, and that separation had a name. It was called evangelism. Then about 20 years ago, I was given a book given a book. It was called I Hate Witnessing, and it was by a pastor by the name of Dick Innes. It's a book not unlike the book that we're looking, going through today or going through these last few weeks, Evangelism Without Additives. And that, the, the premise of the book was kind of reformatting, rethinking evangelism and how we, can, uh, how we can do evangelism, how we can make evangelism doable for the average Christian. Dick Innes, in, in his uh, um, his book, he starts out with this, this statement. He says, and this is a prayer. This is a prayer that he prayed to God. He said, I know that I'm a Christian, and especially as a Christian minister, I'm supposed to tell people about you. I know that I should be sharing your plan of salvation more than I am. Furthermore, it's my job. But God, I am sick to death of witnessing for you out of a sense of duty and trying to tell others about you because that is what I'm supposed to do. In spite of all my years of training and experience, I'm as frightened as ever to witness. I've never found it easy. I hate witnessing, and I'm quitting. I absolutely refuse to keep playing this game any longer. I'm afraid, and I'm finished. He said he then sat back and waited for lightning to strike. (laughs) Instead, he said he heard this deep, he heard God's still small voice deep within his heart say, Amen, Dick. I hate the way you witness too. <laughs> you see, he had felt the same things that I had for all those years. He had witnessed out of a sense of guilt or out of a sense of compulsion. He'd done the right thing, but for the wrong reason. And it wasn't working for him either. And accepting the fact that a Christian pastor would struggle with it as much as I did was comforting. It was comforting to know that so many Christians struggle with the idea of sharing their faith with others. In fact, a poll by the Billy Graham Evangelical Association indicated that only 5% of American Christians have ever led anyone to Christ. Only 5%. To me, what was even more shocking was was that only 15% had ever invited anyone to church. 
facts are uncomfortable, but they clearly show that we as Christians are a silent bunch. Penn, a pen and teller, uh, a comedian, a comedian magicians. And Penn uh, is an outspoken atheist, an outspoken atheist. But he posted a video online a few years ago um, that, that was really very um, convicting. He said this. He said, I don't respect Christians who don't witness. He said, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would be, make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate them not to tell them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? But yet we don't. But yet we don't. We don't think we hate people. But yet we don't. We don't tell them the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Billy Graham, in a training session before a De- Detroit crusade, asked the, the counselors, now these are the people that are going to meet with those that came forward, right? These, these were the bold Christians. These are the ones that were going to be willing to meet with these, new, these people that were just accepting Jesus Christ. And he asked them, he said, what's your greatest hindrance to witnessing? 51% said, percent said it was a fear of how the other person would react that they would not only reject what they told them, but they would reject them personally. And another uh, 28% said they felt a lack of information. They didn't know what to say. These were the bold Christians, and 80% of them were right there with Moses saying, what if they don't believe me and I don't know what to say? We haven't changed much in 3,500 years. And again, although I found comfort and hope in knowing that most Christians shared my anxiety and witnessing, I still wasn't going door knocking. I still wasn't going to stand on street corners and pass out pamphlets. I still wasn't going to walk up to a stranger and start talking to them about Jesus Christ. I just wasn't going to do that. I needed a new plan. I needed a better plan. I needed a plan that was doable, a plan that would work for me. And that's where Acts 1.8 came in. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I've read that verse many, many times. But all of a sudden, its true meaning started to hit home. There were two very specific points within that that greatly changed my whole idea about witnessing. First one is that God didn't call us to go out and do a witnessing program. He didn't. He called us to be witnesses, to be living witnesses to the power of Jesus Christ in our life. It was more than just a set of words and phrases and trying to convince somebody what they needed to do. We were to live our lives so that our lives themselves were living witnesses to Jesus Christ. To me, that was a big change. It took witnessing from being some kind of outward thing that I had to do, something separate from myself that, in reaching out to other people, and made it internal. It made it who I was. My job was to be a living witness to Jesus Christ. And secondly, he says that 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Dick Innes said, uh, then uh, continued his prayer after, after telling God that he, he just couldn't do it anymore. He said, if you want me to bring your message of love and salvation to others, then I'm available. But you will have to do it through me because I'm just too scared to do it. And that's exactly what God does, right? He'll work through us if we just make ourselves willing and able and available to them. It's the same power that, that uh, the same assurance that he gave Moses when he said, then go and I, even I will be your mouth and teach you what to say. He, God says, I'll, I'll, I'll teach you. I'll tell you what to say. I'll, I will speak through you. You just go and I'll do that. It's the same power we find with Peter. Remember Peter uh, on the night of Jesus' arrest denied Jesus three times. He denied that he even knew that Je- that the man Jesus. And just a few short weeks later, after Pentecost, when, when, when the Holy Spirit came down, he stood in front of thousands of people, thousands of people, and proclaimed salvation through Jesus Christ. What was the difference? In his own power, he was too afraid to even admit he knew Jesus. But through the whole power of the Holy Spirit, he could speak to thousands about what he knew. So the plan was clear. I needed to become a living witness to Jesus Christ. That's what I was called to do. The question is, how do I do it? How do I do it? As I reflect on, on uh, my, my life's walk, my life's journey from, you know, this, this scared and disillusioned 13-year-old boy that had just come out of that Boy Scout camp just as, you know, with his knees shaking to where I am today, there's really six points, six changes in my, lives, my life that really stand out as being critical in becoming a living witness to Jesus Christ. The first one is, you must reveal yourself as a Christian to those who know you. For some of you, that's going to be easy. For some, that's hard. I know when I first started walking down that path, that it, was, it was hard for me sometimes. There were some people that knew me from uh, the time before Cindy got me under control uh, <laughs> that uh, would have been hard-pressed to believe that, that I was a Christian. In, a, in the book, Wake Up Calls, there's a story of a man who uh, years ago was praying with one of his children. He asked him if any of the children ever teased him because he was a Christian. The child answered, no. No. Thinking back on his own traumatic school days, the father pressed him further. He said, but kids always give you a hard time if you let them know you're a Christian. The boy's response was frank, if nothing else. He said, all the more reason you don't let them know. And then he rolled over and went to sleep. How many of us are that comfortable with not letting people know what we truly believe? Not letting people know that we identify ourselves as a Christian. But it's a step you have to take. It's a step you have to take if you're going to be a living witness to Jesus Christ. Because if you don't identify yourself as a Christian, then you will be witnessing to nothing more than just being a good person. And there's a lot of good people in the world. When I first started doing this, I was in a commissioned lay pastor training class. This was probably 25 years ago. 
And it gave me a great opportunity to introduce myself as a Christian because I would tell people at work that, you know, I had a class that evening. They'd say, oh, what are you studying? Thinking, you know, they were thinking I was going to, you know, on an MBA program or something. I said, oh, I'm studying uh, uh, to be a lay pastor. Heather was in that class with me. And, uh, and some would engage in you know, what they believed or ask me what I believed. Some would just go, oh, and walk away. But in either case, I had identified myself to them as a Christian. Now, to, to, to show you just how bold I was, I, I had a busy schedule back then. We had three small kids. We had lots of projects working on the house. I had a busy work schedule. Um, and uh, if I was going to get work done for this commission lay pastor training course, I was going to have to study at lunch, which meant I had to bring my Bible to work. Okay? So if you're real careful and you hold that folder just right... You know, nobody can even remotely see that you've got a Bible in your hand when you're walking through the door. And if you get in your office and you slip it in the desk, nobody will even know. Close your door at lunchtime when you're studying, and you're free, right? That's how it started. That's about how bold I was. I have to admit, I never got to the point where I could say, I'm a Christian, see, here's my Bible, I'm a Christian. But I did get to the point where I could hold it in my hand comfortably, comfortably. Because it was who I was. It was who I was. I didn't shout it from the rooftops, but I became comfortable with who I was. So you have to identify. First thing you have to do is identify yourself as a Christian. The next thing, you have to make yourself willingly available to witness. You need to tell God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe not real comfortable with this, but Lord, you know, use me. I, I, I can do this. I can do this. Use me. I guarantee if you do that, God will give you the opportunities to witness. He will put people in your lives and circumstances in your lives that will give you an opportunity to witness. You don't have to go looking for somebody to witness. People will come to you. But if you're doing it out of guilt or a feeling of obligation... Stop. Reset. Spend time in prayer. Spend time studying. Because if you have a focus, if you don't have a focus on your witness, it will show. It will show. Do it out of an act of love for the gift that you've been given. Dick Ennis went on to say shortly that after asking God to help him in, uh, and turn himself uh, in, and in turning up himself over to God as a witness. He was on a plane. He said, and it was the plane wasn't very full, but yet a man sat down right next to him. And he was reading a book on the second coming of Christ, and the man said, do you really believe that stuff? Remember God? He just, he just told God, I'm willing, God, but you're going to have to do this for me. Right? He sits down on a plane, and a man sits down next to him and asks him what he believes. He said, the new witnessing program had begun. He said it happened on the next flight, too. He said nothing quite that dramatic has happened since then, but he said what he took that was was uh, a message, recognition from God that he'd heard his prayer. He'd heard his prayer. That his confession had been honest. And God was telling the witness was now back on track. 
How often have we had somebody tell us their life story or sit down and ask our advice or, or, um, or had a chance to witness to somebody or just to, just to tell our story, and yet we haven't done it? How many times have we just kind of put our headphones on on the plane and ignored the person next to us? If we're going to be an effective living witness to Jesus Christ, we need to make ourselves available. And when we need to make ourselves available, we need to take the opportunities that God gives us. The third thing I realized about being a, a living witness is you really have to be honest and real. You have to be honest with yourself and with the people that you're witnessing to. If your witness resembles a sales pitch or a used car salesman closing the deal, it's not going to work. You may, have, you may get some people to accept Christ, but did they really accept Christ if you had to sell them on the idea? If your actions don't match your words, your words won't matter. If we're going to be a living witness to Christ, that means our, both our words and our actions have to point to Jesus Christ in our life. But if your witness is true to what you know and honest about your imperfections, and if it's guided by the Holy Spirit, you will be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. Whether you want to be or not, you will be. Okay, so that's easy. So what, what happens now when I'm, when I'm talking to somebody about my faith and, and they challenge me with, you know, all the nasty things that Christians have done over the year, you know, in the, in the last thousand years, or, or they ask, you know, um, you know, if Jesus was really God, how could he die? Or, or they ask, you know, how does the Trinity work? Or, or, you know, why does the Bible say this? Or why do Christians act that way? And, 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 and they just confront you with these things. What am I going to do with that? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being a living witness. What, what am I going to do with that? Well, the answer is simple. Tell them, I don't know. Tell them, I don't know. And then point back to your witness of Jesus Christ in your life. Because nobody can debate you about your life in Jesus Christ, what he's done for you, what he's done for your life, what he's done for your family, what he's done for your friends. There's no debate there. You know the truth. You know what Jesus Christ has done for you. There's no confrontation there. And frankly, if they want to continue to debate you about all these various things, invite them to church. That's what I do, invite them to church. If you're really worried about theology, come to church. That's where we talk about theology. Let's face it, if you were in a court of law, you would never witness to something you didn't see, right? You wouldn't. You wouldn't try and pretend that you saw something or knew something that you didn't know. Same thing is true with your witness with Jesus Christ. Witness to what you know. Witness to what you feel. Witness to Jesus Christ in your life. And your witness will be true and your witness will be effective. Remember, though, as I said just a few minutes ago, your walk has to match your talk. Your walk has to match your talk. St. Francis of Assisi was once questioned by a young companion after a trip to town to preach. The entire day they'd walked around, the boy, uh, and the boy questioned the fact that they hadn't talked to anyone about the gospel the entire day. And Francis replied, My son, we have preached. We were preaching while we were walking. We were seen by many and our behavior was closely watched. When you commit to being a living witness, 
when you identify yourself as a Christian, when you make yourself available to witness, realize that your actions are going to speak louder than your words. The next thing you need to do, number four, is you need to humble yourself and accept the, your role in the process. One of the things that it took me a while to get, get a, a handle on, and once I did, it made me a lot more comfortable with what I was doing with my witnessing, is I realized that my faith can't save anybody but me. My faith can't save anybody but me. My job is to introduce people to Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit can give them the free gift of faith so that by their faith, they'll be saved. That may mean I pray with them uh, when they accept Jesus Christ. It may mean that I'm not there. But my job is to introduce them to Jesus Christ through my life and my words. I need to do that at a level that they can understand. I need to meet them where they're at. We also need to understand that um, we're not the only chance that God's going to give these people. He doesn't have them by their ankles over, over a pit of fire, and if we blow our witness, he lets go. I mean, that'd be too much pressure on anybody. And quite frankly, God hasn't really given us that much control over the salvation process, right? He's going to work in their lives in many, many different ways to bring them to faith. Although I don't know the genesis of the statistics, I've heard many times in my, in my life that it takes seven, somewhere between 17 and 18 contacts for an unbeliever to actually accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You may only be one of those. You might be the 19th person. You might be the one that, that makes a difference. In evangelism without additives, it says it takes two years for somebody to go from a seeker to a finder to go from the person seeking Jesus Christ to the one that's out finding people that are seeking Jesus Christ. And Mike Fleshman, in an article in Christianity Today, states that adults that aren't raised in the church, and frankly, when we're witnessing now, many of the people we're going to witness to are people that were not raised in the church, identify their conversion as an extended process. Extended process. Driven by life circumstances, key relationships, that's us, and significant issues that they're working through. We're a part of the process, but we are not the entire process. Do your part. Do what God's leading you to do. Let God take care of the rest. I had a friend in Barrow who um, was purported to be a Christian, may or may not have been a Christian, certainly never came to church, um, was a little bit rough around the edges sometimes. And I would invite him to church on a periodic basis, and he would always say no. And I'd invite him again, and he'd say no. And I'd invite him again, and he'd say no. And we, it was a dance that we went through. We understood the dance, and we, we knew our parts in the play. But as I began to preach more and more in Barrow, I would invite him every time that I was preaching. And the first few times he said no, but then I think he started coming, not so much because he wanted to learn more about God, but just he came as a friend to support me when I was preaching. He never got past the, that seat right by the door, right in the back. He would come in late. He would sit right by the door. After the message was over, he would sneak out before the final hymn was over. I moved from Barrow and moved to Juneau. He retired, moved, moved to Texas, bought a ranch down there. He's living on a ranch and 
I hadn't really seen much of him since then. I was doing some work down in, in Texas. His ranch was about an hour and a half from where I was working. So I, I got a hold of him and I went out to visit him. And as he's showing me around his ranch, he's talking about this church that he goes to. Talk about the things he was doing in the church. His relationship with the pastor. The Bible study that he was in. He started texting me and asking me questions about things that he was studying in the Bible. Somewhere in that two years from the time that we left Barrow, and I saw him in Texas, God got a hold of his heart. I wasn't there. I would have loved to have been there, but I wasn't. Somebody else was with him. Somebody else had the right word or did the right thing that finally got him over the hump to where he would accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and really embraced his life and his walk as a Christian. I did my part. Somebody else did theirs. And we had a new brother in Christ. The next thing that we need to look at, and there's six if you're counting, so we're on five now. You must realize that your witness will be most effective for those who trust you the most. A survey done by uh, Institute for American Church Growth asked over 10,000 people this question. What was responsible for you to coming to the church? 79% indicated that was because a friend or relative invited them. If you're uncomfortable with cold call witnessing, knocking on doors, standing on street corners, walking up to people and just talking to them about Jesus Christ, realize where you're most going to be most effective is really with your friends and your family and your coworkers the people that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. Now, I realize that's a two-edged sword, right? That takes away the, that fear of uncertainty of, well, how is a person going to respond to me that, I, that doesn't know me, and I walk up, are they going to think I'm a crazy, are they going to think I'm a lunatic, are they going to slam the door in my face? You don't have that fear, right, because you're dealing with your friends and family. But now it does elevate that fear of rejection just a little bit more. But it is where your greatest influence is going to be. And just think about that. If you were to witness to your friends and family, and, even, and if some of them are saved and they witness to their friends, and, and some of them are saved and they witness to their friends, it's like dropping a pebble in a pond, right? And the ripples just keep growing and growing and growing until it feels, fills the pond. Our greatest influence is with our friends and our family and the people we deal with on a day-to-day basis. Also, also recognize the fact that... Um, If somebody's searching, if somebody's seeking Jesus Christ and God puts them in your path, you may have a new friend that may develop very quickly. Nurture those friendships as well. Nurture your old friendships. Nurture your new friendships. So when the time comes when they ask you, why are you different? Why do you act that way? Why don't you get angry at this? Why do you, why, there's just a, presence about you. Why are you different? Why is your life different? There'll be somebody that that trusts you when you give them the answer. Nurture your friendships, old and new. Talk about the football game. Talk politics if you want to. Talk about anything that that, that creates that linkage between you and someone else so that when they want to talk about faith, they know you and they trust you. And finally, you need to where am I at? Keep going. There we go. You need to be prepared to meet people at their level. 
not expect them to meet you at yours. And that can get messy sometimes. You can get involved in people's lives in some pretty messy times. Because people will be seeking the Lord most when their life is in the greatest turmoil. As a general rule. Not always, but as a general rule. And so be prepared to be in some kind of messy situations. If we look back at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we see him saying, For those who have no law, I was free of the law myself. To win those who have no law. For the weak, I made myself weak. I made myself all things to all men in order to save some at any cost. He wasn't talking about doing all things for all people. He wasn't talking about becoming a sinner because he was around sinners. What he was talking about was being sensitive to the situation that people were in and putting yourself in there with them so that you could witness to them so that they might be saved. It's an attitude that flowed from Paul's deep conviction that Christ reveals himself to each of us in our own circumstances. And we need to meet people where they are. Witnessing won't work if we have an agenda to try and make people as good as we are. It just won't. We need to think of witnessing as, a, as putting our arm on the shoulder of somebody and introducing them to our best friend, Jesus Christ. Witnessing is a side-by-side activity. It's a relational activity. It's not a nose-to-nose confrontation. It's not a shove in the back. It just isn't. Witnessing is more than a meeting of the minds. It's a meeting of the hearts. And it really is something more than, I think, so often. And this, this gets into in the whole part about looking, reframing our thought process that, uh, that this book said about what, uh, what people that don't believe in Jesus Christ are. They're not lost. They're missing. Right? This isn't reaching down and pulling somebody up. This is reaching out and bringing somebody in. Amen. Amen. That's, to me, what being a living witness is. Over the last couple of months, we've used the evangelism without additives to kind of reframe our whole thought process on witnessing. Because quite frankly, we needed to. I think we needed to, at least most of us did, I did. Um, we needed to have something that was doable, something that we could embrace, something that we could be comfortable with. And it started, like I just said, we, we had, it started with the idea of reframing our thought process on those that are not believers, that they're not lost, they're not hopelessly lost souls. They're members of the King Jesus' kingdom that just are missing, and it's our job to bring them back. It's our job to bring them back. We then had to rethink our own thought process about kind of our self-aggrandizement, our self-importance when it came to witnessing that was so great that it actually stopped us from witnessing. We had to recognize that our witness was us. That our witness was us. It's our lives and how our words reflect our lives and how those together reflect Jesus Christ in our life. And then finally, we had to be willing to make ourselves available. Can we do that? Can we do that? Can we look at unbelievers differently than we did in the past? Can we look at them as people just like us, sinners just like us, people that we need to introduce to our best friend, Jesus Christ? Can we reframe our thought process on witnessing from being something that we do to something that we are? Can we make ourselves available? Can we make ourselves openly available 
to Jesus Christ to be a witness. I want to close with one story. At, uh, when, uh, a few years ago, we took Larry and Beth Smith up on their offer to join them in Kenya. And, uh, and most of our work done was in, was in the slums of Nairobi, in, in some pretty tough places. And Cindy and I went with them, and neither one of us is a, is, has any kind of medical background whatsoever. And this, these were medical missions. Um, they, they had doctors, they had pharmacists, they had opticians, they had dentists. They, had, they, they would set up these medical clinics within these churches as an outreach program for the churches. But we thought, well, we can go sweep floors or do paperwork or something else. Well, they found out that I just recently graduated from seminary and that Cindy was a, a substance abuse counselor. And, and so they asked us to meet with everybody that came in the clinic before they saw the doctors. So the, the, the patients would come in. They would be triaged by the EMTs. They'd figure out what doctor they needed um, to see. And, and then they would come to Cindy and I. Cindy met with the women. I met with the men. And we would pray for them, pray for their, uh, you know, for their health, pray for whatever it was that was the issue that they were dealing with. But before we did that, we would ask them if they were born again, whether they were believers. Most of them said yes. Most of them said yes. But there were a significant number that said no. If they said no, uh, we would engage them in conversation. But at some point in time, we would ask them, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? We had 27 people except Christ. And many, many more that rededicated their life to Christ. But one stands out for me. One stands out. And we were in a uh, remote community called Malui. Malui was an eight-hour bus drive from Kenya on some pretty sketchy roads the last 10 miles on something that I'm not sure really was a road. And we got there, and the, the kids that were less than two years old were afraid of us because they'd never seen anyone with white skin. I mean, that's how remote this community was. Didn't have electrical power. There was a few generators. Didn't have running water. They carried water. They lived in mud huts. I mean, it was, it was rural Africa. We did two clinics there. We did a clinic on a Friday and a Saturday, and then we stayed and worshiped with them on Sunday before we left. On the second clinic on Saturday, I had an older gentleman um, come to me. He needed glasses. And when, uh, when I asked him if he was born again, if he was a believer, he said no. He said, um, when I was 10 years old, he said, I went into training to be the, the village medicine man, the witch doctor. He was 80-some years old. He hadn't been in church since he was 10 years old. So we talked a little bit more, and he talked, told me about how his life just really wasn't going very well right now. And, and, uh, and I asked him, I, said, so I, finally, I just asked him, I said, would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said, yes, he would. You know, how do you get from being a scared 13-year-old that just talked to Boy Scouts in a campground in Minnesota and scared him to death to be in rural Africa asking a witch doctor to accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. How do you get there? How do you get there? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. When I, after he accepted Christ, we were talking a little bit more, and I asked him, I said, why now? Why would you accept? Why did you want to accept Jesus Christ now? He said, because God sent you here to me today.
God sent you here to me today. That was Saturday. Sunday, I was sitting in church, and I had kind of, a, I could see uh, out, the, out the door into the yard outside the church, and I watched as he was walking up to the church. And the men of the church got up, and they walked out, and they greeted him. And they brought him forward, and they sat him in the front row with the elders of the church. I hadn't really done anything. I hadn't done anything. These people have been praying for this 10-year-old boy for 70 years for him to come back. And he came back. And they welcomed him as the prodigal son. And they gave him a seat of honor in the church. Why was I there for that? Why was I there? I mean, it's going to be a one of those moments that's going to just stick in the mind for the rest of my life. And I truly believe, I truly, truly believe that it was God telling a 13-year-old boy telling a 13-year-old boy you're doing it right. You're doing it right. Just keep going. It was a gift. It was absolutely a gift from God. Good news is for sharing. Good news is for sharing. We just need to find a way that we can share it. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, you're marvelous, Lord. You walk us down such different journeys than we ever really anticipated we would walk. Lord, we just pray that, um, that we'd be able to share that with others, share that with people we know, share that with the people that we um, love. Lord, that, um, that you would give us the courage and the insight, the words, the ability to walk, walk in your path, so that others might find you. In Jesus' name, amen.